When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Economist. From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly conversation around themes in the worlds of business, finance, and economics. I'm Stan Peñal, the banking editor, and welcome to the first installment of our end-of-year specials. Identifying the bad guy in Hollywood films is remarkably easy. He's either the one with a British accent or the guy working in finance. From Gordon Gecko to Jordan Belfort, by way of Duke and Duke, the crooked commodities traders in trading places, financiers seemingly cannot get a break on screen. The exception, of course, is the Christmas time classic, It's a Wonderful Life, with its dedicated community banker, George Bailey, adored by the good folk of Bedford Falls, even though he absentmindedly mislays $8,000 of their savings. Philip Coggan, usually found writing our Buttonwood column, has written for our Prospero blog about finance of the movies. He joins me now, along with Oliver Morton, our briefings editor and resident film buff. Philip, let's start with you. Why do bankers and businessmen get such short shrift in movies? I think it's because Hollywood narratives like to pit the little guy against huge forces, and it's quite hard to make financiers into the little guy. Now, oddly enough, you mentioned Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, but he, in that film, is a little guy banker against Mr. Potter, and it's Mr. Potter who represents the hand of greedy capitalism. Jimmy Stewart is a community banker pointing out that essentially his savings and loan recycles uh, funds from the ordinary savers of Bedford Falls to the businesses of Bedford Falls. Uh, It is the best probable explanation of banking on film. Otherwise, I think the temptation is to make finances a kind of shadowy off-screen characters uh, with a prop of a cigar or a smart suit, uh, forever stopping something wonderful from happening or pushing malign plans to favor money as opposed to the interests of ordinary people. Uh, And that is usually the success of the hero over those characters that is the climax of the film. I think there's an interesting point there, Stan. You mentioned that uh, one of the giveaways of a bad guy in a film was that he, normally he, was a banker. Another one in the 1980s always used to be a taste for abstract modern art on white walls. That always spoke to a bad, bad sort of a chap. But also at the same time, it noted a sort of like interest in the elegance of money. And it's very interesting that Wall Street, which is a film that we think of as being sort of like anti-banker, it's not entirely in that, you know, the Terence Stamp character is exactly that sort of like elegant shark-like thing and is actually brought in as good. That's a film, and you get this quite a lot in the 1980s, I think, a film where it's about choosing the right banker. And it's not as obvious as the choice to be against Mr. Potter. You know, there you've got Gordon Gecko, and you've got the guy who's obviously Lord Hanson, but I can't remember what his name is in the film. And you're actually choosing sides. Yeah, interestingly, uh, I was watching Rogue Trader again recently, a 1999 film uh, with you and 
McGregor as Nick Leeson. And here they, they really uh, contrast Nick Leeson as, you know, the brash, Ferrari-driving trader in Asia with the management of Barings Banks, who are all, you know, Tufton Buftons, you know, dining with the governor of the, the, the Bank of England. They're kind of seen as, as the good bankers. And there's a, there's a similar one. It's, okay, it's stockbroker, not banker, but in Notting Hill, there's the Hugh Bonneville character who's clearly just completely useless. I suppose that might be a particularly English way of reading finance, that there are all these sort of like public school boys who really don't have a faintest idea what's going on. If we go back to trading places, which you mentioned, there again, the heroes are actually in the end make their money by futures trading uh, and defeating the uh, Duke brothers. And indeed, they make their money by insider trading, albeit beating a rival insider trading scheme of the Duke brothers. So there's a, a scheme, again, which is similar to Jimmy Stewart, in which it's only uh, acceptable to be successful in finance by beating someone else who's worse in finance. And, and that uh, leads me to the film that's um, coming out at the moment, which is The Big Short, probably the most successful film about finance I've ever seen. And it deals with the problems of financial films quite neatly. The first problem is that it's not very interesting to show someone typing at a screen or trading over the phone. And secondly, that the jargon in finance is uh, completely bewildering. So what Adam McKay, the director of The Big Short, does is every time we have to stop for jargon, he introduces Margot Robbie in a bubble bath or Anthony Jordan, uh, the chef, explaining collateralized debt obligations with the help of fish stew um, to accept the problem that jargon is off-putting and to kind of get around it. But The Big Short is all about some financiers who spotted before 2007 that the US uh, housing market was um, completely over the top and that there was too much debt, that money was being lent to people who couldn't afford to pay it. And that's shown very well in the film. And they are, though they're in a, in a sense to some people villains because they're betting against the American dream, they're betting that the housing market will crash, they're the heroes of the film because they are showing that the rest of the financial system is completely haywire and crooked. But it's interesting what you say there about the exposition of details, because that's actually something that um, is very popular in film for some sorts of things, for forms of physical activity. There is a great interest in actually seeing someone do something right. Uh, and sometimes it's just the sort of like generic action film tooling up scene in which everyone's sort of like snaps the bandoliers around and the cartridges into the guns and all that. But you can't do that for banking so easily, partly because one of the themes in banking films is that people people are out of their depth a lot of the time. And so, uh, for, uh, so, for instance, you can't have a great exposition scene in a film like Margin Call, because the whole point about Margin Call, which is one of my favorite financial films, is that at every stage in the film, you realize that everyone doesn't really understand what the person below them in the hierarchy is doing. There's a great line in, in Margin Call, which actually I think is one of the best finance films in terms of kind of really capturing the essence of, of banking, and particularly crises in banking, uh, where Jeremy Irons, who is uh, coming back to you know, the slightly inept British guy, says to a clearly very young analyst, speak as you might to a young child or a golden retriever. It wasn't brains that got me here, I can assure you that. But though you say he's inept, he's actually, the whole point of that film is that he is decisive and that he is willing to do something truly terrible in order to get through things. Of course, the film is also built around the Kevin Spacey character having to bury his dog. It's a good cast, Martin Call, but I think where it's not as good as the 
big short, is that it's all set within the confines of this one investment bank. If it had been about the collapse of Lehman Brothers, and it's sort of hinted that it is. Pretty much is, yeah. Yes, but except that the implication of the whole movie is that they do come out the other end and that um, Jeremy Irons and Kevin Spacey can keep going. If it had involved the actual collapse of the bank, then I think it would have been in some ways more satisfying at the end of it why are you cheering? You're cheering because these people, not all of whom are very pleasant, have offloaded their dud positions off to somebody else. What's more entertaining, I think, and more noteworthy about The Big Short is that they are exposing something which was rotten. And they do go and show in the sort of tooling up thing that Oliver was talking about, they go and interview the strippers who have bought 12 condos in uh, Nevada. They go to the empty housing states where, where there's nobody answering the door in Florida and so on. So you do see the practicalities of where everything has gone wrong in the sense that you don't really, in margin call, it's all set within the confines of this office block. The other thing about, um, about finance now and finance then, looking back at the golden age of popular movie making in the 1980s, if it indeed was one or it wasn't just a time when I was seeing a lot of movies, is that leveraged buyouts are made, made great little guy, big guy films. So, you know, if you look at Pretty Woman, which is another ex example of the elegance of finance, of course, in all sorts of ways, uh, or if you look at Wall Street itself, or if you look at one of my favorites of them all, uh, Working Girl. Again, a film with Kevin Spacey as, a, as, as an, indeed an even more dubious financier. They're all things in which there is, behind the financial deal, there is decent American people who build stuff or do stuff with their hands or have made an empire from the ground up, like the guy with the shipyards in, in uh, Pretty Woman, and the financiers who want to pull it all apart, and the other financiers who want to keep it together, like the Tenant Stamp character wants to keep together the airline in Wall Street. So that sort of like dynamic of finance against real business was one that played really well in the 80s. And I don't think you're really seeing that in the movies anymore. Well, I think Pretty Woman illustrates another trait of finance and films is in which they're allowed to be the bubble hero. Bar? I think it's bubble bath. <laughs> there is a bubble bath. The they're allowed to be the hero if by the end of the movie they learn that money isn't everything and that other things are more important. So it obviously ends up with uh, Richard Gere carrying away Julia Roberts. And another example of that, you might say, of a businessman at least rather than financiers perhaps in movies, is the social network where you end with the implication that Jesse Eisenberg has created this whole company just to keep in contact and impress with his old girlfriend. Yeah, though I must say I must say I don't think there's a there's a reading of Pretty Woman in which everyone gives up their money. It's pretty clear that, that I mean don't forget Pretty Woman is framed as a fairy tale and that takes you back to sort of like the fount of a whole strand of this stuff and obviously a strong influence um, on It's a Wonderful Life, which is of course a Christmas carol most brilliantly filmed by the Muppets, but also available in various other versions. And that's the other side of the big guy versus the little guy, because one of the other great story, great archetypal stories is the man who learns better. And so Scrooge gives you that. And of course, that's also what happens in It's a Wonderful Life. It's a film about learning better. Well, you need the drama, don't you? I think that's the point. I struggled when writing that blog note to think of a story about a businessman building up a company. And the one that I came to mind was Tucker, which is not a very successful film, Francis Ford Coppola film, but about Jeff Bridges playing this guy who 
built up a car company with better safety record than the Detroit manufacturers had produced and was brought low by their machination. So even when uh, the hero is an entrepreneur, he is still the little guy battling the big corporations. And I, I, I don't think Hollywood can make a move any other way. And the irony, of course, is this is Hollywood where actors earn millions. They work for huge corporate studios. The films are shown in um, cinema chains owned by you know other huge corporations. And the, most of the people who are attending the films work for the private sector and you know drive there in their privately owned cars. So as the audience, we want to empathize with the little guy who's rebelling against the system, even if we're going along with the system every day. The other great example of the elision of crookedness and finance is, of course, the other, apart from It's a Wonderful Life, truly great Christmas movie, apart from It's a Wonderful Life and The Muppet Christmas Carol, <laughs> which is Die Hard in which yes. the, the analogy is made inside the film about is this a crime, is this an act of terror, or is this a leveraged takeover? Yes. And one of the reasons that you know that Ellis is a badden is not just because he seems to have designs on Bruce Willis's wife, nor that he's doing coke on the table, but it's because he's the one who puts it into corporate speak. And he's the one who says, I'm your poison pill, baby, and speckin' the money and these sorts of things. But at the same time, going back to Stan's original point, this is the, uh, the Hans Gruber character, the Alan Rickman character, is archetypal. He's a banker, he's a terrorist, he's a villain, he's German, and he has a British accent, or rather he's British and has a German accent. I mean, that's the Hollywood finance film. All right, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, Oliver Morton, Philip Coggan, thanks both very much. You can read Philip's piece on finance at the movies on our Prospero blog. You can also find a recent piece he wrote on The Big Short on our website at economist.com, along with all the latest news on finance, economics, and business. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.